morning, everybody. Our key scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you'd like to turn over there, I'll be reading that for you here this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. My sons like to ask questions. I think they are unique in all of childdom and liking to ask questions. And we are currently trying to catch up on all the Marvel movies before we go see the new Avengers movie. And so I was sitting on the couch last night with one son on one side and another son on the other. And they not only wanted to know what was happening, which they're watching with their own eyes, but they also want to know why it's happening. But I can't tell them everything, the what and the why, because... I don't want to spoil the movie, and so I say to them, guys, just watch. But why is this happening? Guys, guys, just watch. Just watch the movie. But they have questions about other things as well, so they will ask me a question, and I will give them an answer to that question. And sometimes they will follow up my answer with this question. Well, how do you know that? And I want to say, fool, you asked me in the first place. Why do you care how I know this or not? I just do. The other day, one of my sons was brushing his teeth and he wasn't using uh, the electric part of his electric toothbrush. And we asked him to turn it on, and he turned it on, and it was on for about two seconds, and then it stopped. We said, we'll try again. He turned it on, turned it on, it was on for about two seconds, and then it stopped. And we said, well, the battery's dead, bud, so as soon as you're done, you need to charge it. So, sure enough, he finished, and we said, put it on the charger. And he pulled out the drawer and put it in the drawer. And I said, why didn't you put it on the charger? And he says, well, Dad... When the toothbrush is about to die, there's a light that flashes. And the light flashing tells you that the toothbrush is going to die. I said, yeah, but if the battery's dead, the light can't flash. <laughs> and he said, but dad, when the battery's dying, the light comes on. And I said, yeah, but if the battery's dead, the light can't come on. But dad... I opened the drawer, pulled the toothbrush out, set it on the stand. Well, by that point, my son had already gone into his room and gone to bed and was crying and upset. I had hurt his feelings because I had not listened to him. And I said, son, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings, but you need to trust me that I know just a little bit about how your toothbrush works. And I know that you know something about it as well. But perhaps, in this case, I know something a little bit more. He did not accept that answer gracefully. But here is the thing about us. We think that we are so smart. We think we understand so many things. We have the answer to all kinds of questions and in our worst moments, though we may be loath to admit it, we think we know what God is doing 
and how God should do it. We argue with God about how things should be and we complain when things don't work the way that we want them to. And this is true of us because one of the hardest things for us to admit is that we don't know the answer to a question. That God sees more than we do. Paul points this out to us powerfully in 1 Corinthians. We think that we are so much smarter than God. And when Paul was writing that letter, the church was surrounded by people who had answers to every single question they could ask. And none of those answers involved God. They were other answers, other things, other explanations. And they were surrounded by people who were lost in sin and death, and they would stand up and say, we are good, we are smart, we are wise, and we don't need a Jesus. And so Paul points out to them something that we should marvel at a little bit this morning. The world said, the thought of needing Jesus is dumb. And so Paul says, but God, in his wisdom, chose to use what we think is foolish to save us in spite of ourselves. In spite of ourselves. The wisdom of this place cannot stand against the wisdom of God. His foolishness is greater. His foolishness is greater than the complete sum of human wisdom and knowledge. And his weakness is greater than all of our strength combined. Our God is mighty to save. And we celebrate how God saves us from sin and the power of Satan in our lives. But this morning we celebrate something slightly different. That God chose to save us from ourselves. From our own pride. From our own unwillingness to listen. From the things that we hold back from Him because we think we know better. God sent Jesus for us. Even when we didn't want Him. And that is a wonderful thing. Amen? Everyone needs compassion, the kindness of a Savior. Let mercy fall on me. We have been um, looking at the Bible as a story. A big story with a beginning, a middle, and end, with characters, with a plot that is moving forward. A lot of things have been happening. And uh, today we are going to be talking about uh, Solomon. Uh, we've been looking at David for the past several weeks, and uh, we are we're going to take the next step uh, in the story this morning. And Solomon was most known for uh, two things, for building the temple and for the wisdom that God gave him. So this morning, as we get started, I want to tell you a story about wisdom and foolishness. When I was a kid... Um, my parents had a 1966 Mustang that they were the original owners of. My brother drove it, my sister drove it, and when I turned 16, it was decided between my sisters and myself that I would be the one to get a driver's license. And they were actually, they were okay with that. So, um, so I wanted to drive the Mustang. And, uh, but it had sat forever, so I started cleaning it up and it took me an entire summer, actually, I spent an entire summer rubbing down the entire car with polishing compound because it had sat in the Fresno sun for about eight or nine years. And so I had to rub the entire top layer of oxidation off the paint by hand. 
uh, which took a while. But I loved this car. But we didn't have a lot of money to put into it, so we kind of had to incrementally fix things. So the first thing we had to do was tires, of course. Um, we maybe should have done the brakes as well. Because they did go out on the road, but that's another story. There was another problem where um, there was rust in the gas tank. And so uh, I had to carry a rubber tube in the car with me, and I would, uh, when the car would die because rust was clogging the fuel line, I would coast to the side of the road, I would get out this rubber tube, I would undo the fuel line from the carburetor, stick the rubber tube in the fuel line, and then blow. Yeah, no, you don't suck. <laughs> you blow. There are all kinds of things that, I, I love the car, but there are all kinds of things that went wrong. Uh, but one of these times, we, it, it died while we were on the road, and I think we were pretty close to home, so my sisters and I, we had to push the car the rest of the way in. Um, I was the only one that knew how to drive. But I wasn't going to have, it wasn't going to fly for them to push me you know, all the way back home. So we put my sister Brooke into the driver's seat and, you know, you know, steer here, here's the brake, you know, we got it all down. So we're pushing and we're working, pushing this car. We come around the corner down my parents' street. We're coming up to the house and Brooke turns the wheel so that we turn left into the driveway and then she says, I don't know how to stop. <laughs> she had never driven before. And in this moment, even though there were only two pedals, she panicked, and she didn't know which one to push. I panicked, because now the car is coasting toward the house, and there's nothing to stop it from running into the windows that were at the front of our house at the time. So what did I do? I ran around the car to the front, put myself between the car and the house, and did something like this. <laughs> Seriously, th this is what I did. Because I was going to somehow absorb the impact, let my back hit the wall, and push and that was going to stop the car. Wisdom. Fortunately for me, the house, everyone involved, my sister did realize that there were only two pedals and that if she just put both her feet down, it would stop. So she did that. She put both her feet down. The car stopped. I'm still standing there like this. And suddenly I realize... That was one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life, was trying to manually... Uh, by the way, at 16, I was six foot two, 135 pounds. I could, that's a lot of metal, baby, coming right at you. Can we just be completely honest with one another. There are a lot of times where we think we have a really good idea. And sometimes it's not even an in-the-moment kind of thing. I mean, sometimes we think it through. Sometimes we come up with the reasoning or the rationalization behind it. Sometimes we have all sorts of reasons. But we are not always the wisest of people. We have been uh, looking, as I said, at the story of David, and we saw both the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in the life of David. When he relied on God, which he did for a great portion of his life, he was able to accomplish amazing things. And with God on his side... And the faithfulness that he showed to God, he was able to change the fortunes of the nation of Israel. Pulling them out of this cycle they had gotten into of not trusting God and leading them into the ways of the Lord. And he attributed everything he did to God. He gave God all the credit, all the success. 
He knew that that was where it all came from. But he fell into the trap of forgetting that he was a man in service to God. And he believed that he was the king. And when he began to view himself as the king, it was then that he made some of the worst decisions of his life. You see, here it is. When he understood that he was not the best person to make decisions, he relied on God. And God always led him in the right way. Why? Because God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. So much so that Paul says his foolishness is greater than our wisdom. So as long as David lived in this space, as long as he lived in this space, God blessed him and everything went like it should. However, when he began to believe that he knew how to do things, and he came up with the worst idea ever, everything fell apart. And as we talked about last week, we see some important truths in this story. One of them is this. Sin is a real problem for God. It is not something that He can overlook. He cannot ignore it. He cannot pretend like sin does not happen. And we need to feel that tension. That our sin is a violation against God. And that what we do and the choices that we make matter. And this is a huge part of the plot. Man keeps on sinning. Keeps on making mistakes. Makes the same mistakes. Over and over and over again. They continue to rebel against God. And as Nathan said to David, when David sinned, he showed utter contempt for God. Because our sin matters so much, there is a cost associated with it. And David had to pay a huge cost. He lost the son that he had had with Bathsheba, the family that he created, which was not what God wanted with all of these, these eight wives. They start fighting, raping one another, killing one another. His son rebels against him. And David spends a good portion of the last part of his life just trying to manage how everything has fallen apart. And we saw that the kind of things that he put out there, the choices that he made, came back to his family the same kinds of choices and regrets. And God, though we may want him to, cannot simply undo the consequences of the bad choices that David made. He cannot simply undo the consequences of the bad choices that we make. If my sister had not stopped the car, I would have been hurt. Or maybe I would have stopped the car. <laughs> we shall never know. Likely, the most likely scenario is I would have been hurt. Because I, I made a stupid choice. An unwise decision. God cannot simply undo the consequences of the bad choices we make. When we make a bad choice, something is going to come with it. And for God to just undo the consequences would be for him to say, you know what, it really doesn't matter. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's fine. And so David has to live through that. God was loving and forgiving, and even though David had to live through that. But God's great desire is for David to be restored. And he is faithful to David, even though David did all of these things wrong. David's life came to a close, a truly remarkable life, but he had one great desire. The thing he wanted to do more than anything else was he wanted to build a temple for God. He wanted it desperately. To him, in his mind, it was the last piece that needed to fall into place. But God told him that he could not do it because he had too much blood on his hands. But God promised him that his son Solomon could build a temple. So instead of sitting around and pouting about it, do you know how David spent the last portion of his life? He gathered as much material for the temple as he could. 
brought it in, laid it up in stockpiles. And he stood before the people and before God and he said, Solomon, my son, is going to be king. And remember, who was Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. Solomon, my son, is going to be king. God has said that he can build the temple. I want you as my people to rally around Solomon to do all of these things for him. And God will bless you and God will bless him. And this is the way that David's life ended. And it was time for Solomon to step in and become king. Now, I have a question, which maybe you have too. Solomon is coming from a family of extreme dysfunction. And with his mother being Bathsheba, it was sort of the cherry on top of the dysfunction, right? That lit the fire that became the end of David's life. So here's the question that we have, and it's the question that we have whenever something new happens within the nation of Israel. Will Solomon be faithful to God? That is the question. Will Solomon be faithful to God? Will he listen to God? Will he seek out God? Will he be more like the David who acknowledged God in all things, or will he be more like the David who took things into his own hands? So here's what's really kind of funny. In the story of Solomon, we actually have two almost completely separate stories happening. There are two things that are taking place at the same time. One is Solomon building the temple. But the other is what's happening in Solomon's own life. So here's how the story starts. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron or Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Okay, this is our introduction to Solomon. Now, what do you notice about this introduction? There is both what? Good and bad. What is the good? The good is that Solomon is following the directions of his father. He is paying attention to God. He is doing things as they should be done. What is the bad? Well, one, he is sacrificing in the high places. Okay, but they don't have a temple yet. All right? But there's something else that has slipped in there. What is one of the first things he did? He made an alliance with Egypt and married a daughter of Pharaoh. Now, let's step back for a second. Um, as I said, David really wanted to build a temple for God, but he was not allowed to do so. So he gathered all these things necessary so that basically when Solomon became king, the first thing he could do was start building the temple. And that's kind of how it happened. He built, he built up the palace. He built a wall around Jerusalem. He did all of these really important building things for him. Now, here's what we have to understand about the significance of the temple. God had formed the people of Israel, yes? Yes. He called Abraham out to be his own. He promised Abraham that his descendants would be his people. He led the people out of Egypt he gave them the land they were on. He defeated all of their enemies. And we know, because we've read the story, that there were lots of hiccups along the way. There were lots of problems. Okay, the people forgetting about God. We talked about the judges cycle. All of those different things. But by the time Solomon came on the scene, they had reached a level of success as a nation that they had never known before. They were pretty legitimate at this time. And it shows in the fact that Pharaoh would want to make an alliance with Israel. Think about how bananas that is. And, and they formed this pact together. But 
So they had, they had reached this place, but there was just one problem. The problem was this. God, more or less, still lived in a tent. He did not have a home. There was no permanent place where his people could go to worship him. There was no permanent place that they could go to find him. And this is why it was so important for David to build a temple and why he spent so much time in the last part of his life gathering the best materials possible. He understood that, the, that what we need now is for our identity to be firmly centered around God. God is going to be in the middle of our capital city. We are going to go there to offer sacrifices to him. We are going to go there to worship him. God will be the peace that keeps us together. Solomon showed that like David, he desired to have a strong relationship with God. But we have this nagging worry in the back of our head because of what he did to start. After all, what was it that led David down the wrong path? Too many wives. Which God had warned them about again. Do not have more than one wife. Because if you do, your heart will be led astray. But Solomon showed that like David, he desired to have a strong relationship with God. And overall, he's, he's looking at things in a different way. But we need to understand this, that Solomon's life is very different from David. Because officially, as the king, what are the two things he starts doing? He starts building, and he starts reaching out to other nations in acts of diplomacy. What was David's life marked by? War. That dude fought his entire life. But Solomon is stepping into a new situation. It's a new era for the kingship of Israel. And Solomon understood that God was the source of his strength, and so he asked God, and what is a remarkable move, I think, he asked God for help to be a better king. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. This is to God. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on the throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and And wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, so God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Okay, so what Solomon does here is a great thing. What does he acknowledge? I am not fit for this job. What did David acknowledge over and over again when he was close to God? It's not me. It's you. And so Solomon starts out in the same way, and God comes to him. Because of the great offering he had made and says, what can I give to you? And what does Solomon ask for? Help me know what to do. Help me know what to do. 
And God looks at this answer. Now, this is important because we see something that is so wonderful about God. God hears what he asks for and God is what? He's pleased with this. And God practically says, thank you for asking for this and not asking for wealth or money or for your enemies to die. Thank you for understanding it's me and not you that's going to make this work. And then God does something which is truly a wonderful characteristic of God. He gave Solomon more. What he didn't ask for, he gave it to him. You will have great wealth and honor. There will be no one like you. Now, for us, we're a little more skeptical than God is at this point. You know, we're reading with eyes that are kind of squinted a little bit. Because we know how this has gone before. But God doesn't see it that way. God says, here is someone who is going to honor me and I will honor him. And I will raise him up. Solomon was interested in being a good king. God wanted him to be a good king. And it would seem that though Solomon asks for wisdom, he does the most wise thing he can possibly do at the beginning and says, God, I need your help. And God kept his promise to Solomon. Solomon was, in fact, the wisest man around. There was no one who could match wits with him. And this is the most famous story about Solomon's great wisdom. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my, pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says my son is alive and your son is dead, while that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. I would have loved to have seen their faces at this moment. Right? Bring me a sword. Huh? Come again? So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order. Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him cut him in two. And in that moment, what does Solomon know? who the mother is. Then the king gave his ruling, give the living baby to the first woman, do not kill him, she is the mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Amazing, right? It's such a great story. God had given him wisdom and what did he have? Wisdom. So now we know that he can administer justice in Israel. And this is important because they have not done such a great job of doing this in their history. Remember, by administering justice, that means they are following the law of whom? Of God. So Solomon now has the tools given by God that are necessary for him to lead the people in the way of God. And again, because he did not have to go to war like his father did, he engaged in diplomacy and building projects. And it's kind of funny when you read through his story, all these nations and peoples that are coming to him. They hear about how wise he is. They hear about all the things that he was doing. But his main job again was to do what? Finish the temple. This is his job. And he did finally do that. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, 
He brought in the things his father David had dedicated. Now listen to this. See if you can wrap your mind around this description. Where has God been living? In a tent. Where have they been worshiping him? In high places. Places that were sacred to them where God had done something. Okay? And now they finally have a house for God. He brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. And this is where the wisdom kicks in. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer of your servant and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day. This place of which you said, my name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. It is a huge day in the life of the nation of Israel. And Solomon handles it flawlessly. The place is built. They bring in the things that David had collected. They bring in all the leaders. Everyone is there. And what does David say in front of everyone? God is too big for this place. This place cannot contain him. And it was never meant to. The heavens cannot contain God. But what we are going to do is ask for God to rest here. To be close to us. So that when we pray, God will hear our prayers. So that when we reach out for him, God will be there. So that when we bring sacrifices, they will go straight up to God. We want this to be the dwelling place of God on earth. Knowing that he's bigger than all of it. Knowing that none of this can contain him. And if God lives here, then our people will be close to him. And I love this line. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. He is doing just what he should in calling God to the middle of the nation of Israel. And is God happy with this? Yes, he is. He is pleased. When Solomon finished praying, listen to this, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good. His love endures forever. 
When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice saying, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and keep his commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord and King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22 thousand head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple to God. Okay, let's overlook the logistics of this for a moment. It's a lot of animal. But what we see here is something that we have not gotten to see very often in the story. And that is this, this mutual coming together of God and his people in a time of recognition and celebration. When have we seen this kind of moment? When have we seen this kind of thing happening? You have to understand, this is a celebration. They are rejoicing because God has a home Amongst them. And when they reflect on it, they say, God is good and his what? Love endures forever. It's a, it's a magic moment that we have not seen in the story. The temple became the center of Jewish life and worship. It became a symbol of who they are. This is what we wanted all along. That God is at the middle. That God is the one who sets them apart. So what could go wrong? God knew there was trouble brewing. I mean, God has burned, burned before, yes? And he has blessed his people and sanctified them before, yes? And they have said before, you are our God and we are your people. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Think about that for a second. We have just come out of the celebration. They are his, he is theirs. And what is the next thing he says? When I punish them for turning away from me, I will hear them because this is my place. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away 
and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them. Then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them, this is why he brought all this disaster on them. The honeymoon is over. So very, very quickly. Because God is wise. And God sees what has happened. And he sees what can happen. He knows what can come down this road, and so he warns Solomon. I'm going to be here. I'm going to accept your sacrifices. I'm going to accept your prayers, but I'm going to be here, which means that when these people turn away from me, I am going to see it, and I'm going to hear it, and I'm going to try to punish them. And when they turn back, I'll be here. But if that doesn't work, and these people keep turning away from me, if you turn away from me, then this place will be a monument to your failure and not a place of worship. I'm almost glad to hear God say this. I know that sounds weird. But we have seen him be hurt over and over and over and over again. And he makes, just as Solomon made the important point that God, you cannot be contained here, but we invite you into this place. God makes the important point that this beautiful building does not end what's going on with us. It facilitates what's going on with us. But you still must be my people. And I'm going to know if you're not. Whether this temple is beautiful or whether it is on the ground. The gold ornamentation, cedar woodwork in the temple brought glory to God and were gifts of beauty to many generations. But God wanted faithfulness, integrity of heart, obedience. These are the things he wanted. And he didn't care about the temple if those things were gone. The problem was that Solomon, with as much wisdom as he had, how much wisdom did he have? More than anyone. Who gave it to him? God. With as much wisdom as he had, he made two major compromises. Two major compromises. The first one um, was that he was rich. Really, really, really rich. Foreign kings and dignitaries would come and they would bring him gifts. And they started sending things to him every year. Listen to this. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, which is a measure of weight. Not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and governor of the territories. This is different, people, than what we've seen before. King Solomon, made two, <laughs> King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forests of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. 
Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of the of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. <laughs> Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's eyes. Or Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned, carrying, this is my favorite line, carrying gold, silver and ivory, and apes and baboons. <laughs> it is the mark of a rich man. To have monkeys. <laughs> king Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They did not bargain. They just paid for them. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. Okay, what do we learn here? He was a wealthy king. Was there anyone who was more wealthy than him? No. There was no one who was more wealthy than him. Now, we can back up for a second and we can ask this question. How did he become so wealthy? Because God gave it to him. God said he would give him honor and wealth. But these things caused a huge problem in that whom did they build up? Solomon and not God. And what is the problem we have seen with mankind over and over and over and over again? Where do we fall when we start to believe in ourselves? There is something important that we need to note here. God had called his people to be distinct from all other peoples on the face of the earth. They were to worship God and God alone. But beyond that, they were to rely on him for everything they needed. God would provide for all of their needs. But during the time of Solomon, it came to a place where wealth didn't mean anything anymore because there was so much of it. And when you have so much that silver is like a rock on the ground, what do you need God for? What do you need God for? There was a second problem he made. We're almost done here. Women. During Solomon's time, polygamy was considered normal but was not sanctioned by God. And like other kings, Solomon had a large harem of wives, um, many of whom were from other nations. And because he had these so many wives from other nations, he began to relax his views on pagan worship. Um, he had so many that it would have been difficult for him to manage it anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines so he has a thousand women in his life. And they are from these other places and they have these other gods. And what is the one thing that God warned him about when he spoke to him? Do not worship other gods. So, Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart, his heart after other gods. He lost his sight of the Lord and he began to follow 
Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the god of the Ammonites. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord as his father had done. And now we see something remarkable about David, don't we? When he was confronted with what he did, what did he do? He repented and he went back to God. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. From this point forward, the nation of Israel becomes they become a mess. They become a mess. And what I want us to see from that passage is this. God is trying desperately to uphold his side of this deal. To a man who asked for wisdom and then did the most foolish things he could do. I believe this story is a warning to us. It's a warning to us for a couple of reasons. One, we are not as wise as Solomon was. And if Solomon could make these kinds of mistakes, then we'll... But we can be wise in recognizing the traps. What are the traps? The traps are the things in our lives that convince us we don't need God. Or, that convince us to follow another God. Or, that put anything in the place that God should have. For us in this place, is wealth an obstacle to us following God? Yes. It is. Are the ways of the world around us an obstacle to us following God? Yes. And here is what we see. There are a thousand and more voices saying, follow me. But there is one God who invites and blesses, but ultimately says, It's your choice whether you stick with me or you don't. You can choose me. I will help you. I'll give you everything you need and more. You can choose me, but you can also choose something else. And there are so many something else's that can fool us into following it instead of God. So what do we do with this? We pray. And we pray for something that we do not like to pray for because it is a scary prayer. Do you want to hear what it is? God, will you show me the things that I have elevated above you. Will you show me the things I have elevated above you and will you give me the power that I need to put you back where you belong? You could pray that prayer for the rest of your life and nothing else. But if we pray that prayer, then we better be ready 
to see where we have walked away from God and to do something about it. Let's pray. God, you are an amazing God. You love us and bless us and give us so much. And God, we have short attention spans. We forget so easily. And with the new shiny things that are dancing around us, asking us to follow them, God, sometimes we know we're doing it, sometimes we don't. God, I pray this prayer for us that we would ask you in an openness of heart, God, to show us what we have put above you and to give us the strength to put you back on the throne of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in an amazing way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.